Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As Joanna said, we're starting a new series of messages today. We're calling a spiritual audit. Every year uh, here at Seabreeze, we hire an independent CPA to come in and conduct a review or an audit of our finances. Now, this practice began back when we purchased this property. The bank that loaned us some of the money uh, to buy this land required an annual audit and then an annual review. And the reason they require this is because there's a lot at stake for them when it comes to our financial health. It's not enough for us just to tell them, hey, we're fine, trust us. No, they, they want independent verification about the facts of our financial condition. Now, I really appreciate this annual review process because I want to know the truth about how we're doing financially. I mean, it would be terrible to walk around thinking that we are financially healthy if that's not the case. Now, when it comes to our relationship with God, there is much more at stake for us than there ever will be financially. The spiritual stakes not only affect this life, but they affect all of eternity. But most people are perfectly fine walking around with only a vague personal assessment of the truth in this area of their life. So I thought it'd be helpful for us to begin the new year with a kind of spiritual audit. And the spiritual CPA that I've selected to use is the Old Testament prophet Malachi. It's a short book. It's actually the very last book in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, just four chapters. Now, the Old Testament prophets were kind of like the microphones that God used to amplify his message to his often distracted, usually confused, and generally rebellious people. It's kind of how God got through to them. Now, they were not known for their soft and flowery words. The prophets in the Old Testament, well, they were straight shooters. And as such, they were not really well-liked. You know, you don't go to a CPA if you're looking for emotional support. You go to them if you're looking for the truth. And it was kind of the same with the prophets. You know, you, you listen to a prophet if you really want to know the truth. If you were just looking to feel better, then the prophets were not your cup of tea. Now, what's unusual about Malachi is that the microphone is passed back and forth between what God says and the response of the people. In other words, they talk back. Now, this had probably been going on with all the other prophets. They'd probably been talking back under their breath all along. But this time, God decides to include their thoughts into the record. It's a part of the book of Malachi. Now, their comebacks, as you read through this book, you'll discover they're not really that profound. They basically consist of, uh-uh, prove it kind of statements. That's about all they say. So what God does in response to their comebacks is he does prove it. He opens up the books, the record of their words and their deeds, and he puts his finger on the truth and says, here, this is what I'm talking about. Now, in accounting, the financial truth is recorded in something called a ledger. Here's a picture of just a, what's called a simple ledger. Everything is entered either as a debit or a credit, a plus or a minus. And the balance is what you get when you combine the two, when they're added together. Now, we do this kind of thing morally. We don't necessarily write it down, but we have a, a ledger in our mind. And whenever we do something good, well, we think of that as a credit to our moral account. And whenever we do something that we know we shouldn't do, say something we shouldn't say, well, that's a debit. You combine the two, the good we do, the bad we do, and you have kind of the balance, which is our assessment of how we're doing morally and therefore kind of how we feel about ourselves. Now, what strikes you as you read the Malachi audit 
is that God has a very different view on how they're doing than they do. His balance is really different from theirs. Now, this is the final book in the Old Testament. And God closes the Old Testament in this book by putting an exclamation point on the theme that's been running through the entire Old Testament. The theme is this, humanity has a significant problem with sin. No matter what we do, no matter the resources God provides and however the prophets remind them, people just keep doing bad. They keep sinning. So we can think however we want to think about ourselves. But the truth that's revealed through the pages of the Old Testament is that without God's mercy, without an answer for sin, without a Savior, we're sunk. We have no chance at getting the balance to where it needs to be in our lives. And this is the point of the Old Testament. The Old Testament presents the human problem that is answered in the New Testament, the Savior of Jesus Christ. So in the last words that God speaks in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, before he sends his son, Jesus Christ, he wants to make the truth, the summary of the Old Testament problem very clear. And this is still the problem today. You know, we all carry around in our heads an internal ledger about ourselves. But it turns out it doesn't usually, or if ever, line up with what's really true, the facts about us. And that's a concern because one day, We're going to all stand before God to give an account. At that point, it's not going to really matter how we felt about ourselves. At that moment, it's going to be the truth that wins. So there's a lot at stake in this spiritual audit. We need to know the truth about ourselves from the only independent outside source that there is. That is God. So we begin today with the opening statement. And this opening statement is the lens through which the entire audit needs to be seen. It frames the entire audit, every finding that we will go over in the four chapters of this book. Here's the opening statement, Malachi 1, 1 through 2, an oracle. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. What an interesting way to start an audit. Before God gets into all their shortcomings, and he does, he wants to make clear that he has already decided before this audit is conducted, to love them. It'd be kind of like a financial auditor saying before they even looked at the first piece of financial data that they'd already decide to pay for whatever problems they found in their audit. That doesn't happen. So it's no coincidence that the next thing that God says, after what he says in this book, he says to Mary in the first book of the New Testament. These are the first words of God. In the New Testament, Matthew 1, 21, to Mary, he says, you will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The problem presented in the Old Testament finds its solution in the New Testament portion of the Bible. So the opening statement in Malachi makes it clear that nothing that's going to be discussed or found in this spiritual audit is going to alter the fact of God's love for them. There's going to be a 400, period, uh, 400 years of silence between this final statement of God in the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So it's going to take some time before it's clear how exactly God is going to forgive and how we are going to experience his mercy through his son. But just for now, God says, I want you to know 
that I have decided to love you. And the audit isn't going to change that fact. But they grab the microphone back and they say to God, prove it, basically. This is what they say. But you ask, how have you loved us? They look around and they say, we don't feel real loved. We're not feeling the love. Prove it. So here's God's response. You know, they were looking for promises of life getting better, and, but this is what God says in proof of his love. Malachi 1, 2 through 3. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Huh? Do you see that? I mean, what kind of answer is this? God is pointing back to the patriarch of their nation. His name is Jacob, or as he was later named, Israel. It's where the nation got its name. Jacob was a twin. His brother was Esau. Before either of them were born, God announced that the nation that he had promised to Abraham would go through Jacob and not his brother Esau. Why? Was one brother the moral superior to the other? No. I mean, they had not even been born yet. They had not made a single moral choice when God announces this decision to their mother, Rebecca. Now, love is a big word, and hate is a shocking word. And they're used here to get them and us to pay attention and to listen to this very important point that God is making. And the point is this. God made a choice. The future of Israel would go through Jacob. It would not go through Esau. And this is the nature of choices. Like every choice, it sets up a dichotomy. What I mean by that is to choose to do one thing is to choose not to do another. To choose one person is to not choose another. When my wife and I chose to marry each other, it was also a choice not to marry anyone else. Now, we called our choice love. Rightly so. But what's the opposite of love? Hate. Now, we didn't send out a notification with our wedding announcement to all the people we did in the past, informing them that we had decided not. We decided against them. Now, that was kind of implied in the decision to marry each other. So why does God set up both sides of this? Love and hate. Well, the word hate here is used not in the sense that we normally use it, like dislike or petty rage, but of contrast. God is making the contrast very clear so that what is highlighted is the power of his choice. The fact that God's love for us is a choice has three very powerful life-changing implications that are beyond the ledger, beyond the good we do, beyond the bad we do. There are three implications. We're going to look at them this morning. The first implication is God's choice is beyond our choice. Both are real, just one is bigger than the other. You know, this audit, this Malachi audit, like any audit, is a record of the choices we make. If it's a financial audit, it's a record of the financial choices. If it's a moral audit, it's a record of the moral choices like this one is. And we tend to think that we are the only ones choosing, and therefore the future flows entirely out of our choices. Now, it is true that we do choose, and it is true that the future is shaped by our choices. But beyond what we choose is what God chooses. 
And God's choosing power has more power than all of our choices because God is God, because his power is more powerful than us. It's kind of like the choosing power of a one-year-old and the choosing power of the one-year-old's parents. You know, a one-year-old definitely has the power to choose. No one would deny that a one-year-old doesn't have an idea what he wants or she wants. And the one-year-old does have the power to impact the day. But it's the choices of the parents that carry the day and the month and the year and the direction of the family. Because, well, they're the parents. They have more power. The difference between our choice and God's choice is much greater than the difference between a one-year-old's choice and the parent's choice. And the point that God is making is this. When God chooses to love someone, there is nothing that any audit will ever turn up that will counter that. That's the power of his choice. Now, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because God's love isn't human love. What that means is it, it doesn't change. We're not familiar with that kind of love. Human love is really impacted by the balance, but not God's love. So that's good for Israel. I mean, God chose Jacob. God chose Israel. But what about us? In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul says that the blessing of God that came through Jacob and the nation of Israel has now been continued to the followers of Jesus Christ. Here's what we read in Romans 9, 13 through 16 about this. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. This is a direct quote out of what we just read in Malachi. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend, this is a huge statement, on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That's a life-changing statement. But notice the first response that we tend to have. It's anticipated by the Apostle Paul in this. What do we say? What's the first thing we say in response to this? Is oh, I can't believe the power of God's love for me to choose me. No, our first response is, well, that doesn't sound fair. It's not just. Why? Well, because it doesn't add up. We just almost can't see beyond the ledger. From a ledger point of view, this, to me, this makes no sense at all. You know, at the end of a day, particularly at the end of a life, we total up the entries of the good columns and the bad columns, and we're left with a balance. And if the balance is negative, well, that means we've done more bad than good, and it kind of makes sense that we deserve God's anger. But if we've done more good than we've done bad, and we therefore have a positive balance, well, then we, it kind of makes sense that we're good. We deserve God's love. That's what we call just. Everything balances out. Now, of course, we do a little tinkering with how we enter things. Paul alludes to this. We not, you know, in order to help out the positive balance, we not only count effort, we also count desire. You hear this a lot. Someone does something that's really devastating. And their response is, oh, I, I didn't mean to do that. As if their desire cancels out what they did. But that's the way we, you know, we, we view ourselves as like, well, I didn't know, or I, I, was, I didn't intend to hurt anybody while we hurt a lot of people. But we kind of 
not only effort, but desire. And therefore, most people carry in their mind a pretty positive view of what the balance is. This is really a pretty good description of the approach that most of the religions of the world take. Really, all of them, other than the Bible, take this approach. For example, the Hindu is built on the law of karma. The law of karma basically says you, you want to do more good than bad. If you do more good than bad, then you're reincarnated into a higher life form. And if you repeat that, then you get another promotion. And on and on the promotions go until you finally cease to be an entity and you are absorbed into nirvana. That's the Hindu view. Now, of course, conversely, if you do more bad than good, then you get an emotion. You get into a lower life form. This is what the law of karma is. Now, the five pillars of Islam are activities, five activities, like fasting and prayer and pilgrimage, that if done repeatedly and good enough, one day just might, there's no assurance, but just might qualify you for paradise. The Eightfold Path of Enlightenment for the Buddhist is simply a more defined path that grew out of the law of karma out of Hinduism. But pretty much any religion you look at, while they differ on what to do in order to please God, in order to be okay with God, they all pretty much agree that it all depends on the ledger. You do this, you do it well enough, often enough, you're good. You don't, you're not good. But the Bible is different. Now, there is a ledger component in the Bible. You know, the Ten Commandments are clearly a list of ledger-type entries. In fact, right after God gave the Ten Commandments, he lined up priests on one side, and they proclaimed the blessing that would fall on people who did these commandments. And on the other side, the consequences of people who didn't do these commandments. Well, that's, that's the ledger. Though there is a ledger component. But in the Bible, it's not the largest component. It's only one part of what shapes our future. In the Bible, God's love and his mercy win the day. They are beyond our effort, beyond our good and beyond our bad. In the Bible, we are presented with a God who is at work beyond the ledger, not instead of the ledger, but beyond of it, beyond it. Now, that kind of lines up with our experience. Kind of makes sense because there's often a disconnect between what we do and what happens. We've all experienced this. You know, we make a good entry, and then bad stuff happens. And our immediate thought is, no fair. That, that doesn't make sense. I, I was trying to do what was right, and then instead, things get worse. That's not just. Or conversely, We've got lots of experience with doing bad stuff, and we wait for judgment to fall, and bad stuff doesn't happen. Sometimes even things get better. This is why so many people really don't want to have much to do with God. They don't see the evidence that God runs things because the ledger accounts appear to be off. The thought is, if God's in charge, he's not a very good bookkeeper. Things don't balance. Life is not fair. The reason life is not fair is not because God's not in charge, but there's more going on than the ledger. The ledger is about us. You know, our name's on the top 
of our ledger. The bottom line, the balance, the total balance at the bottom is about our moral efforts, our choices, our efforts, our desires. But what is said in Romans 9 is that beyond the ledger is God's mercy. And that's what the future really depends on. God's choice to love you, to be merciful to you. That's what our future needs most and is most dependent on. There's no amount of desire or effort on your part that can force God to love you. It's his choice. And there's no failure of desire or effort on your part that will stop him from loving you. He chose to love you, and that's that. For a reason that I don't know that we'll ever understand, God loves you, and that changes everything. Now, the ledger does matter. It is real. What we do is important, but God's love matters even more. That brings us to the second big implication. God's love is beyond our efforts. God's love is beyond our efforts. We tend to think of love as a qualifying arrangement. In other words, something that we need to qualify for, something that we need to earn in some way. But God doesn't see love that way. God thinks of love as a decision. You know, when I was trying to get Rebecca to love me, I did my very best to look good, to sound intelligent, to present myself in the best possible light. The reason is obvious. You know, if I was in some way repulsive or irritating to her, good luck. You know, love, loving is stand a chance. And that's the way human love is. You know, we're loved because of the way we look, the way we act, mostly the way we love back. And so we think that God loves us for kind of the same kind of reasons. We, we, don't, we, we have a hard time thinking beyond the ledger of love. So if we're doing good morally, what we often say is we, we really sense God's love for us. And if we're failing morally, how do we feel about God? We just don't feel a love. What we're really doing is we're just projecting our balance onto our view of God's love. That's not the way it works. The fact is, we need to get over ourselves. You and I have never been that morally attractive to God. God never looked at us and said, wow, they are amazing moral people. We've never been a deal. He chose to love. It was his choice. Now, God does want us to change. You read through the pages of the Bible, there's a lot of instruction, a lot of statements from God about how we can change and why it's important to change. But it's not in order to make us look more presentable so his love has a reason. No, we don't, we don't change in order to earn his love. We change. He wants us to change so that we can know the joy that comes with doing life his way. That's why he wants us to change, because he loves us, not in order to qualify us for his love. So what this means is that God's love for you and for me is absolutely secure. As it says in Romans, it does not depend on our effort or our desire. 
That almost takes a lifetime for that to sink in. Because that's all we experience. In a way, God is saying, I know that it makes absolutely no sense to love you people, but I just do. It's my choice. And that makes his love for us the most secure force in all of the universe. We don't have the power to dislodge it. We don't have the power to shake it. But the fact that God chose to love us seems to make our moral efforts then kind of irrelevant to us. You know, we, we hear this news and our first thought is usually not, wow, I am so grateful. Our first thought usually is, so either I'm set or I'm toast. And most people fall into this kind of either-or trap. You know, either we are free and we're responsible and the ledger is the centerpiece of all of reality, or God is deciding and he is choosing and he is ruling and while well, we're just the pawns in his big plan. But the Bible presents a both and, not an either or on these. The Bible makes it very clear that we are free. We are completely free. Our choice really matters and therefore we are completely responsible for our choices. And it also presents a God who is sovereign, who does rule, and his choices win the day. In our way of thinking, those seem to be exclusive. That's just because we lack the mental power to understand the mystery of God. In Scripture, they come together. These are not equal ideas that fight for preeminence, but rather one, our freedom, that operates mysteriously inside the other, God's love, and his plan. So, did we choose God, or did God choose us? Yes. Both are true. But he chose first, in a way that didn't make our choice rigged. Kind of like that one-year-old. Parents chose first. But the one-year-old has a will, and it's real. Now, I know this is a stretch for our minds. I've been making you work mentally this morning. Kind of get the, the bugs out in the new year. Get your mind limber. And because of the challenge for us to really understand the mystery of God in this, historically there have been two wrong responses that we tend to come up with as we think about this. The first wrong response is we get worried that maybe God didn't choose us. And so, we're doomed no matter what. No. If you're sitting here and you've listened this far, it's evidence that God's at work in your heart and He's pursuing you. He loves you. If you are worried at all or concerned at all or feel any angst at all about you and your relationship with God, that's evidence of spiritual life. God loves you. You can settle that. Sometimes people struggle with this if they're really going through a bad period morally. They're really falling down a lot and messing up a lot. They conclude, well, that's the problem is God never did choose me. Now, the simple fact that you feel awful about that 
is the strongest of all evidences that, yep, God loves you. That's why you even care. The second wrong response is kind of on the other side of the spectrum. Well, if God loves me, it doesn't matter what I do. Woohoo! <laughs> I can party. I can, I can, I can do whatever I want because His choice wins the day. Therefore, I can make any choice I want, and it's not going to dislodge His love. Well, no. Because the ledger is real. Yes, and that God's not going to stop loving you. But that doesn't mean the ledger isn't real. It's just not the biggest thing. The ledger is real, and what that means is there are real consequences. So if you want to live an absolutely awful life, go ahead. Blow God off. I mean, life's going to be hard, but if you want it to be much harder, I don't know why you would, but if that's your choice, then yeah. You're not going to dislodge God's love for you, but what you are going to cut loose is a lot of the joy and peace that he wants you to experience in this life. So before God begins with this audit in Malachi, he wants them, and therefore all of us reading this to know, we are not the bottom line. He is. His love for us is the bottom line. His choice. Now the third implication of this amazing fact. And that is that God's plan is beyond our circumstances. God's plan exists beyond our circumstances. When this book was written through the prophet Malachi, this was a time of despair and dashed hopes in Israel. Things were not going well at this point in history for them. And that's why when God says, I have loved you, they say, huh? Prove it. How have you loved us? So God proves it by taking a long look back over history and pointing out how they have been a part of his plan for generations. But that was not the proof they were looking for. Their thought was, okay, great, you chose Jacob, but my life is awful. I don't care what you did for Jacob. What have you done for me? They were looking at their current circumstances and finding no clear evidence of God's love for them. We do the same thing. This is another way that we tend to live inside the confines of the ledger, dare I say, prison bars of the ledger. We just have a hard time seeing anything beyond that. We think that if someone loves us, well, then they should, that means they should give us whatever will make us happy now, in the moment. So that's why when we encounter difficulties, we just can't understand why a God who loves us that much wouldn't come to our immediate aid. And so we carry the same question around. Well, God, prove it. But the truth is this. God's love is always attached to God's plan. We think God's love should be attached to our plan. It never is. Sometimes they dovetail and we think, oh, God loves us. But when God's plan goes this way and our plans goes this way, we wonder, does God love me anymore? We're thinking inside the ledger. God is up to something that is good, but sometimes, not until his whole plan is done, will we see the brilliance of what he's doing right now. 
Right now, we're not feeling the love. Last week, Elliot talked about the story of Joseph in Genesis. He was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. Well, the ledger was sure off there. I mean, there's evidence that he was a slightly irritating younger brother. But slavery, that's a little bit of an overreaction. No one deserves to be sold into slavery. Well, then he shows up in Egypt, and he's soon put into prison for refusing to have sex with his master's wife. The reason he refuses sex is not because she's not attractive, but because he doesn't want to dishonor God. He does this to, it's a credit in his ledger, and the result is prison. Well, that that doesn't balance out. For the better part of two decades, Joseph's Joseph's life was one record of doing the right thing and getting a bad result. For 20 years. But in the end, as God's plan works its way all the way out, Joseph became the second in command in Egypt. And God used him to prepare not only Egypt, but the nations around them for the coming famine, seven-year famine. And in the process, God was doing a plan that would save the lives of millions. So, In Joseph's little ledger, it was negative, negative, negative. But in God's plan, oh, finally in the end, it worked out. The question that we have to answer is, when do you total up the balance in life? You see, the balance on this is in the right column, and so that indicates a running daily balance. That's usually the way we do stuff, whether it's just our checking accounts or ledgers. We keep a running balance. And that's what we tend to do with God. We have a running balance on God's love for us. We evaluate God's love based on how our life is adding up right now. And we always come to the wrong conclusions. Because you never know what God's up to in the moment. God is not our butler who allows us to find his love for him by his performance for us in the moment. His love for us is thoughtful and strategic. So what that means is he's often doing what we don't want done, but in time will be seen to be the very best. God loves us. He does not serve us. It's so hard for us to accept this. His love is beyond our desire. It's beyond our effort. And his plan is beyond how your life is going right now, how things add up right now. Now, next Sunday, we're going to begin diving into the Malachi audit. We're going to be looking at some of the findings that were true of them, and amazingly, 2,500 years later, rings true for us. But before we get into the details, we need to understand this. This is the lens through which this entire audit needs to be conducted. We need to understand the God who is not bound by the ledger. For his purpose, and because of his own love, he operates beyond the ledger. The ledger operates inside. It's real. It's just not the biggest thing. So don't for a moment think that you're beyond all hope. God has decided to love you and include you in his plan. 
There is no bigger fact, no more solid truth than that. As it says again, to begin this audit, Malachi 1, 1 through 2, an oracle. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, we ask, prove it. How have you loved us? Let's pray. Father, we stand like at the base of a tall mountain, shrouded in fog, as we try to ascend and scale and understand the mystery of your power and your choice and how that wraps up in our choice. And I pray that as we have ventured into the fog, the mystery of your greatness, you would help us to come away with the key nuggets of understanding that your choice is beyond our choice and your love is beyond our efforts and your plan is beyond our circumstances. As we start this new year and look to a future that is completely shrouded in fog, Father, anchor our feet on the solid ground that you love us. Remind us of this. Anchor us in this. Change our perspective as we move day by day into the future. We pray this now in the name of the one who purchased our forgiveness, Jesus Christ. Amen.